Welcome to the Three Martini Lunch. Grab a stool next to Greg Corumbus of Radio America and Jim Garrity of National Review. Three Martinis coming up. Happy Friday to all of you. Yes, it is me, Chad Benson, in again. Greg Corumbus off today doing a bunch of interviews. Jim Garrity here. It is the Three Martini Lunch. We've got your good. We've got your bad. We've got your crazy. And let's just jump right into it, Jim. Let's start with the good well, at least if you're a Republican and you're in Florida and you're running for governor, because uh, the Democrat seems to want nothing to do with the juggernaut that is DeSantis. Yeah, this is somewhat surprising. And it's not quite accurate to say Democrats are conceding the 2022 Florida governor's race, but it is worth the sort of thing that raises eyebrows, finding out that the Democratic Governors Association, the national organization whose job is to elect Democrats to governor's mansions all across the country, as you know, according to uh, several Democratic consultants who've been in contact with the DGA, say that the Democratic Governors Association has no plans to give significant financial help to Florida Democrats as they seek to unseat Ron DeSantis next year. And Politico characterizes this as a major setback that will make it harder for challengers to take on the popular Republican. Look, this doesn't guarantee Ron DeSantis will win re-election, but it does indicate that uh, it certainly improves the odds some. And they point out that the Democratic Government Association spent more than $15 million in Florida over the last two cycles. You know, you do math, that's like in the neighborhood of $7.5 billion each year. That's, that's a big chunk of money. Now, it's also worth noting, Florida is one of those states that has turned redder and redder Cycle after cycle, you know, that people thought it was going to be a jump ball and Trump won by a pretty decent margin. Now, the irony is that, you know, DeSantis won eh, kind of by the skin of his teeth and Rick Scott had actually won uh, both of his races by pretty close margins the two previous cycles. So it was a Republican state, but not a blowout margin type Republican state. And it looks like the Democratic Government Association has said, you know what, we've got other races we want to prioritize particularly a bunch of incumbents in the upper Midwest, you know, Wisconsin, Michigan, places like that. So um, that's adding to this perception that Ron DeSantis is unbeatable. And I got to tell you, you know, or, or certainly not worth a prioritization by national democratic groups. And if that's the case, man, oh man, I think, you know, if he wins by a nice big healthy margin, yeah, I think that does set him up for a presidential bid if he's interested. And uh, you know, that's uh, all, all kinds of interesting good news. I always love it when Democrats find themselves unable to find a good candidate and, and kind of conceding territory early on in the cycle, way back in, God, I want to say it was 2013 or so, um, Bobby Jindal uh, in Louisiana, they, they eventually ran a school teacher against them. They, they could not find a single state legislator or former official or anybody else like that who wanted to run against him. Because uh, he had done such a great job in his first term, so of course things didn't turn out great for Bobby Jindal when he ran for president. But just kind of always no. interesting to see where uh, Democrats see territory that they, you know, once might have thought was winnable, and now see as an exceptionally steep climb. Do you think the the they're looking and the, first of all they see the war chest like they say in the article they want fifty million dollars sitting there, but they also look and they're reading the room and saying. You know, Florida's had its ups and its down, but, you know, the COVID thing has really brought out people with the passion that they think would back DeSantis and and that trying to throw money at something they feel is an uphill battle. And COVID, as much as it hurt Trump and his attitude hurt himself as well, but has helped in some ways DeSantis really kind of, you know, grab a hold of this and, and kind of make it his own. You know, 
it's funny because you're thinking about Bob Graham. The, the, there haven't been a ton of statewide Florida Democrats in the last couple of cycles, but the ones that have been there, I don't know if you could say how super duper moderate they are, but I don't think they, they definitely have not been AOC level liberals. And I think the, uh, the, the identity of the national party is putting Florida Democrats in a tougher and tougher spot. And the other thing they say in this article, which is worth, you know, kind of the, the other side of the coin is that there are states that currently have Republican governors like Massachusetts, like Maryland, like Arizona, that might be lower hanger, lower hanging fruit for the Democrats in 2022. So it, it is worth noting that like some of this is they think they got better opportunities elsewhere. Why are we going to spend all this money? Florida is a big state, a lot of media markets. It's an expensive state. Um, you know, so maybe there's a certain amount of, of school thought that says, yeah, you know, this is just not the best territory, not the best cycle. We're not going to bother doing it. That said, I think Ron DeSantis has become such an object of hate amongst the progressive grassroots. Whoever the Democratic nominee is, they're going to throw a lot of money that way. And this could be another kind of, you know, Beto or Work or Jamie Harrison, um, somebody who gets a lot of money from national donors because they hate the, Demo- the, the Republicans so much but who actually is not all that competitive and it's not running in, in very uh, not running in fertile territory by any stretch of the imagination. Yes, I am Chad Benson in uh, for our good buddy, Greg Corumbus. That's Jim Garrity of uh, the National Review. It is the three martini lunch. That was your good. And we've even got more good news for you. Is that correct? Indeed. This comes from our sponsor, Gabby. It is crazy how fast the prices of just about everything are rising. Gas, groceries, clothes, you name it. And all the experts are saying it's probably going to get worse before it gets better. Now, if you're looking at all the ways you can possibly cut costs, ways where you can save where you can, you might want to start with auto insurance and start with Gabby. They know shopping for auto insurance sucks, which is, you know, why they'll do all the work for you. Things that would ordinarily take days or weeks, Gabby can do in just minutes. Gabby uses your current policy to compare your current coverage with 40 of the top insurance providers. We're talking about companies like Progressive and Nationwide and Travelers. They are the one true comparison platform with fast, verifiable quotes, not ballpark guesses. And because Gabby uses your current coverage, they only show policies that are the same or better than your current coverage, many of them at a lower price. And Gabby is free to use and they will never sell your information. So you'll never have to deal with annoying spam or robocalls. You know, I use Gabby, my wife and I did, and we saved a little bit of money on our house, but our car payment, all, I mean, our, our, all these other insurance things that we have, let me tell you something. We saved so much money. I'm I'm amazed that people aren't doing this more because the amount of money we're well over a hundred and probably fifty bucks a month in savings and in a day and age when you can save an extra buck here or there you know basically a half a tank of gas now it's still worth it for sure. People who switch with Gabby save on average eighty dollars a month versus their current policy eighty dollars. And it's not just us who love Gabby. Gabby has been featured in TechCrunch, Forbes, and USA Today. So you should start saving on your auto insurance today. Go to Gabby.com slash martini to start saving today. And remember, it's totally free. That's G-A-B-I dot com slash martini. Gabby.com slash martini. Chad Benson in uh, for Greg Columbus on the Three Martini Lunch. Jim Garrity is here as always. We've had the good, now the bad. And look, Afghanistan, whether it was Trump or anybody else, it was never going to be smooth. But the way it went down was awful. And the fact that we still have 14,000 green car holders stuck there 
is something else that is not sitting well with a lot of people. You know, Chad, I've been writing about this a lot basically since late summer. And one of the, you know, I, I think this has been an appalling chapter in American history. But uh, as election came along and other, you know, news stories kind of, uh, you know, became a bigger part of my news diet, uh, I kind of, you know, spent a little less time checking in on my usual sources. And one of the things I did notice, though, throughout this entire process is that when the administration talks about Americans in Afghanistan, they would give you numbers for American citizens. And they'd be very specific American citizens. They wouldn't say anything about, you know, legal permanent residents or more commonly known as green card holders. Now, green card holders, uh, within a few years, they can apply for U.S. citizenship. And the only thing that a green card holder can't do that a U.S. citizen can do pretty much is vote. There really isn't any distinction. And when it came to evacuations, statements from the U.S. government and the U.S. embassy said they were prioritizing U.S. citizens and legal permanent residents. But the administration had been really vague on this. Well, it came out in a hearing the other day. Uh, Chris Smith, the Republican of New Jersey, asked, and apparently they've, apparently they've had this number for a while, 14,000, or something in the neighborhood of 14,000. As many as 14,000 legal permanent residents remain in Afghanistan. Um, they did give some more updated numbers on how many uh, U.S. citizens are out. We're talking about now in the neighborhood of 377 U.S. citizens, 279 lawful permanent residents. You add those together, that's 600. And I think like there are a lot of parts of this story that are appalling. One of the things that is most infuriating is you go back to the administration statements from August and September, whether it was Blinken or Biden or Ron Klain or uh, State Department spokesman, they kept saying, oh, it's about 100, you know, 100, 100, 200, that's about it. Well, now we know there are, you know, several hundred U.S. citizens and in the neighborhood of 14,000 legal permanent residents. They were ludicrously off base on this. I don't think they were guessing. I think they were trying to do everything conceivable to downplay this. And the crisis is still going on. So I'm hoping what I wrote today will get more attention to this. It is already generating a bigger reaction. It is appalling. It is infuriating. And the Biden administration should not be allowed to walk away from this mess they left in Afghanistan and these Americans they left in Afghanistan until the job is done. We are a long ways away from the job being done. Oh, by the way, I went back and I checked. It has now been 77 days since Joe Biden said in an interview with George Stephanopoulos, if there are American citizens left, we're going to stay until we get them all out. I suppose some Biden defender could say, well, he only said American citizens. He didn't say anything about you know, green card holders. Yeah, I guess they're on their own. Good luck, folks. Hey, some of the people that were there and, you know, for those of you guys don't know, a lot of Americans, even some of the peacekeepings done through contractors and things of that nature. How many of those people are still there out of choice comparatively? How many of them that can't just get out? Yeah, OK, so for the folks I have been talking to who have been trying to get uh, Afghans with special immigrant visas, legal permanent residents, they haven't really talked to too many of them involving U.S. citizens. Um these are very often Afghan-Americans. Uh, these are folks who, you know, uh, qualified and received their green cards sometime in the past 20 years. In some cases, they worked as translators for the U.S. military. In some cases, they worked in other roles, helping the coalition or helping the administration there. And they are, uh, but they have family members who are not, who do not have U.S. green cards. So theoretically, they could either get to a border post and go across the border, or they could get to the airport, you know, on one of these flights that's getting out of there. But they'd have to leave their wife behind. They'd have to leave their children behind. They'd have to leave their parents behind. They'd have to leave their siblings. And so the question, it's, it's Sophie's choice. It's like, you know, well, okay, you can get out of the country, but now you have to leave the people you love to live under the Taliban for, you know, God knows how long, maybe the rest of their lives. 
And in a whole bunch of these cases, because you are an American or you work for the Americans, the Taliban is out to kill you. And they may or may not want to kill your wife. They may or may not want to kill your kids. They may or may not want to kill your siblings and your, and your parents. So these folks are in this, like, this, this you know, catch-22. Yeah, they could get out and they wouldn't have to worry about themselves dying. But then how do you abandon people you love more than anything to them, some of the worst butchers on earth. It's this impossible decision. So from what I'm hearing from my folks, a lot of these folks are still in hiding. They're still trying to figure out if there's some way. The U.S. State Department is still figuring out how to process visas for these people because you can't go and have a meeting at the embassy anymore because we shut down our embassy. Um, it is an utterly infuriating set of circumstances. And uh, I, I don't like this reflexive defense of the Biden administration you see from some folks. And, well, they were warned. Well, remember, Biden was running around saying there was no way the Taliban was going to take over the country quickly. You know, like, you know, and the other thing is, how do you leave your family members behind? Uh, it is absolutely utterly infuriating. All right. We've had the good. We've had the bad. Let's at least have some crazy because nothing says fun and Friday like Charles Blow and crazy. <laughs> yeah, maybe this isn't the most fun topic, but it did feel uh intriguing and and people say this is one of the bigger self-owns they've seen on the internet in a long time for those who are not familiar with charles blow he is a columnist for the new york times one of the more liberal ones and certainly not my favorite probably you know about as far from my favorites you can get but he's on twitter the other day and he looks at the new york times does a pretty good job of regularly updating its map broken down by county of the average daily cases per 100,000 people who have COVID-19 in the past week. And, you know, the lighter the color, the better you're doing, the, the darker the color, the worse you're doing. And if you look at the New York Times website now or in the last day or so, um, it is generally very light colors all through the southern states from like about Texas to about Missouri uh, and then across to Virginia, North Carolina, you know, little speckled spots here and there. Um, West Coast is doing eh, generally okay, but where you really, you see some red up in the Northeast, you see some red in the kind of upper Midwest, Minnesota, Wisconsin, Michigan around there. And where you really see a bunch of like really dark maroon counties or in the worst shape uh, up in the Rocky Mountains, uh, Montana, Wyoming, Colorado, Utah, New Mexico, places like that. And it's, and he's like, how can this, and so Charles Blow looks at this and he says, I am mystified by how these Southern states have such low rates of COVID when many of their governors haven't followed CDC guidance. Someone please explain this to me. Now, as much as I would love to dunk on Charles Blow, uh, I've been writing about this, like, actually, probably for about six weeks. I wrote it for about four straight weeks, and then I stopped because I felt like there was really nothing to say. Because every week the story was the same. Hospitalizations for COVID-19 were going up in hospitals in the north, and they were down in hospitals in the south. This was starting in around... Uh, Late summer, end of August, early September, and when, you know, the Delta variant went through the southern states, and it was bad. It was really, really bad. There's, there's no two ways getting around it. I would urge everybody to go out, get your shots, take care of yourself. Um, but it was interesting, this is hospitalization rate rates. And you could go up to a state like Maine, which, oh, by the way, it's got a bunch of patches of red right now. You could go to a state like Massachusetts, and you could see some of the hospitals were under strain. You might say, wait a second, they have high, high vaccination rates. Well, the way I'd put it to anybody is think about how many hospital beds are in your community and then think about how many senior citizens there are and then think about how many people are immunocompromised. So it doesn't take that many people getting sick with COVID-19, either they're vaccinated 
uh, either unvaccinated, which makes them more vulnerable to the virus, or they're vaccinated, but maybe they're really elderly. Maybe they've got some other major health condition. I think like Colin Powell was a really good example where uh, he was up in his 80s and he had blood cancer. So those are two, you know, when you have that combination of age and health, unfortunately, the risk of succumbing to complications from COVID-19 is, is higher than normal. Um, you add all that up and you have a situation. Oh, the other thing also is that uh, the, you know, the, the virus spreads much more quickly when people spend a lot of time indoors. Uh, if you're outdoors, I think, you know, less than 1% of all, you know, cases, confirmed cases of transmission have occurred outdoors. So when it's really, really hot in the summer in the South, people spend more time indoors because they want to get through the air conditioning. That's how the virus spreads faster. In the, you know, in Northern states, summer's pretty nice. People spend more time outdoors. The virus is not spreading very quickly. Well, now it's uh, late October, getting into November. Weather's a lot cooler. Now it's pleasant in the South. And it's, you know, getting pretty darn chilly up in the northern states. And for each one of these weeks, you've seen hospitalizations going up and you're seeing the cases go up. So the short answer, Charles Blow, that's what's happening, is that a lot of the spread of the virus is uh, impacted by people's behavior, which is driven by you know, responses to temperature and weather. And that's what you're seeing here. Now, uh, you know, are you going to see a huge die off in the northern states? Probably not. They, they have pretty good possible uh, uh, vaccination rates. Um, but as I said, you know, you know, vaccination does not necessarily prevent case, you know, cases of getting infected. In fact, I think one of the things that's worth noting here is it's probably time for us to put aside this notion of using case numbers as our measurement of how bad the uh, pandemic is. You can be vaccinated, you get, you get infected. In most cases, a bunch of people have no, no symptoms at all. Some people have minor symptoms. Usually it comes and goes pretty quickly and it's not really a bad doesn't put you in the hospital, doesn't put you on a ventilator, doesn't put you into the ICU and doesn't kill you. So the, basically the gist is Charles Blow had this like preconceived narrative in his head of, you know, Northern, Southern states bad, Northern states good. And he sees this map and he freaks out. He's like, how could this possibly be? Well, the answer is the variants already gone through those states. So my guess is the South is either, if they're not at, you know, uh, uh, herd immunity, there's just not that many people left for the virus to jump into between people who've had the infections or people who've been uh, 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 people who've been vaccinated. And if you know you're not sick, you're not going to go out and get tested. You don't get tested, you know, people aren't going to know that you have it. So you know that's what's going on here. I, I, I just kind of wish Charles Blow could read. Um, I mean, I think probably the problem is he's probably reading too much New York Times, Chad, and he probably should read more <laughs> National Review. <laughs> probably a little balance there. Oh my yeah, lord! You know, Why would they want to have a, balance? Yeah, a chaser, you know, just to just to you know wash it all down. So. Yeah, it's. I've often wondered. It's like you don't think you don't just want to look and say, you know what? We all believe this, but is there more to that? Because we're only investigating and looking at stories from one point of view. Maybe somebody else has another story. And you brought up the age thing, which I think is great because when you look at places throughout, especially the the upper Northeast, and you compare them, juxtapose those ages comparatively to what you see a lot of in places like Florida, I think you find that age gap is much larger. Yeah. Oh, you know, what, uh, you know, Florida, I, I guess I should say most of the Northeast, ironically, the state that has percentage-wise the most senior citizens on a level with Florida is Maine. Most people you know, did not didn't necessarily, but a lot, a lot of senior citizens up in Maine. But other than that, um, yeah, I, you know, that, that Florida is a state, uh, you know, God's waiting room, as they used to joke about it, a lot of retirement homes and retirement communities down there. And uh, that, you know, makes a big impact on how state, how vulnerable your state is to COVID-19. Um, 
you know, I, again, I, I think a big chunk of this is that we, we, you know, going back to the beginning of this pandemic, we became conditioned to think of any infection as bad news. And the higher the infection rate was going, oh, my God, this is terrible. Uh, you know, people reacted with, with great fear, great trepidation, a great sense. But if you have this, the virus spreading amongst people who are young and healthy, I mean, you know, you'd rather it wasn't the case. But the chances are this virus, particularly with the high transmissibility of the Delta variant, this thing is going to be endemic. This thing is going to be around, floating around. It's going to become like the common cold. And the good news is people will eventually build up, you know, levels of immunity that it won't be much of a threat to them. Um, lots of people who are young and healthy were not, you know, not likely to succumb and die or end up in the hospital, uh, you know, from the beginning of this pandemic. That said, you know, we've had more than 700,000 Americans die. This has been a long and painful road to get here and we'll see how things shake out. But, uh, I think we are generally moving in the right direction in the pandemic. I think it's largely in our rearview mirror. We'll see how, how winter goes. Um, I, you know, vaccination rates are down pretty darn high. We should be getting Absolutely. back to normal life. But, uh, you know, my suspicion is that folks like Charles Blow, who have this very ideological view of how this pandemic is supposed to proceed, are part of the problem here. Yeah. Yeah. Well, some, for whatever reason, some people don't want to let it go. He... Right there, Jim Garrity. I'm Chad Benson. Follow me at Chad Benson Show. Uh, filling in today for uh, Mr. Columbus. We'll be back on Monday. How do they get a hold of you there, uh, Jim? Uh, I am at Jim Garrity on Twitter. Uh, can be found at National Review, right in the corner several times a day, and write the Morning Jolt newsletter each, each weekday. Always good to be here. You have a great weekend, and everybody else, be safe out there. The border crisis is getting worse, and so is big tech censorship. Hi, this is Sarah Carter. On The Sarah Carter Show, I dig deep into these huge challenges that directly threaten our national security and our freedom of speech. Please join me. Subscribe to The Sarah Carter Show at Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.